Welcome to the Know and Do podcast. My name is Justin Barton. Before starting the conversation I recently had with Mary Swords called Just Do It, I want to share a little bit about the Know and Do podcast. One of the goals of this podcast is to speak with people who have experienced life, both the ups and downs, and are willing to share some of that wisdom earned and learned with those who are walking that path behind them. My hope is that something from each of these conversations touches the hearts of each listener and motivates them to do just one small thing a little bit better. This change of heart has the potential to help each person become a bit better. And when the individual becomes a better person, the family benefits. When the family becomes a bit better, the community benefits. And you get the picture on and on until the world becomes a bit of a better place. This is one reason I feel that it is important to strive to develop wisdom by talking to real people with real experiences, both positive and painful. This is what the Know and Do podcast is all about. I have several more of these conversations lined up, but I'm always looking for more people with life lessons and wisdom, learned and earned, that are willing to share with me and the listening audience of Know and Do. My ideal interview would be with someone who is a bit nearer to the end of his or her life than the beginning, and has a story to tell, and is willing to share the good and the not-so-good, so that others can learn from their experiences. These conversations are also hoped to be a kind of legacy, where the person involved can impart some of their more important thoughts and philosophies, and lessons learned, along with some experience that many may not have heard yet, to their children, grandchildren, and on down the line for generations to come. If you know of anyone that fits this description and who would be willing to have a recorded conversation with me, please email me at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com and let me know. We can then start the process of getting it set up. Also, if you find the Know and Do podcast to be of value to you, please share it with your fa- friends and family. Please subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please rate and review us on that same service. You may also follow Know and Do on Facebook. Just search Know and Do and like us and leave us a note to let us know what you like most or what you would love to hear in future episodes. Now, on to the conversation with Mary Swords. Mary Swords and her husband Rick have been godsends to my family since we moved to Spokane about three and a half years ago. They have always opened their hearts and home to us and made the best hot cocoa and cake we could ever ask for. I can honestly say that I love Mary and Rick as my own family. And that is the dominant theme of this conversation, family. In this episode of the Know and Do podcast, we will hear as Mary shares her experiences of living all over the world as a military child and wife, her love of her grandmother and of her twin brother, Her experiences as a single mother, fighting to raise good children and keep a roof over their head, and just some great words of wisdom about the importance of family, near and far. Open your heart and mind to any gentle promptings or blunt two-befores upside the head, then be ready to act on those thoughts, to become a bit better of a person yourself. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being willing to sit down and have this conversation with me. I'm really excited about it. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate the offer, although 
I'm still a little skeptical. I do appreciate the offer. <laughs> and as I mentioned before, almost everybody I speak to says, I don't know what I have to offer that's of any value to anybody. But I found that people, normal people just like you and me, are very interesting. We have good stories to tell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me a little bit about yourself today, who you are, what you like to do, some things that motivate you from day to day. What am I like today? Today, I am almost 72, which every time I say that comes as a complete surprise to me. (laughs) I've been retired for 20 years. I like to, I like to walk. I like to walk and, and watch how the, the neighborhood and, and the area that I walk in, because it's quite a a lengthy walk, how it changes with the seasons and day to day. I like to read. I'm an avid reader, probably two books a week. I like to shoot trap, which raises some eyebrows occasionally with people. Why, I don't know. There are a lot of women trap and skeet shooters I was raised going to the pistol and rifle range on a regular basis Hmm. as a small child. So So tell me about your first memories of shooting at those. What are some of the first things you remember about being at the pistol and rifle ranges? My dad used to compete on a Navy team, and he competed mostly with pistol. He shot a forty-five, so he he would practice a lot, especially if he had a, a something coming up, some kind of competition. And at his practices, he liked to take somebody with him. And even though I have three brothers, mm-hmm. one of them older, one of them the same age as me. Mm. For some reason, they they just weren't interested at that time. So I would go with him. And if I was going to be with him at the pistol range, he was going to teach me how to shoot so mm. I could have something to do while he was practicing. And that was probably nine, I'd say. About nine years old? Yes. Wow. So... That's what we did, and and that continued going to the pistol range with him off and on until probably 1982 or so. So well into your adult years. Oh, yeah. At least one of my brothers would go fishing with him occasionally Mm because he had a boat, and they'd take it out in Puget Sound. But I'm the one that went to the range with him. Wow. So... Very neat. And so have you also shot competitively pistol, trap? Some, not a lot. Uh, Rick's shot, of course, a a little more than I have competitively, and then he did the long range and stuff. But um, I just like to go and shoot a couple rounds of trap and have fun. You know, to me it's just fun. Is it also relaxing or is it just I'm just out there having a thrill? Both. Yeah. And I'm just, as far as shooting is concerned, I'm not really into the 
competitive thing because it can be, it changes people. Mm. And I don't like the way it changes people at, at times. You talked a little bit about your dad. Tell me about your parents. Where you come from, some of your first memories of them and your family together. Um, my dad was an only child, and he is born in Spokane, actually. Mm. When he was young, they moved to Tacoma because my grandfather worked for the railroad. So he grew up in Tacoma in a huge, huge house, and there was my grandmother and grandfather, my dad, my grandmother's sister, and my grandmother's brother, who had never, neither one of them had ever married, and they lived with my grandmother from the time I was way before my, my birth. They were just always there. Hmm. And my grandmother, whom I idolized, was an older grandmother. Now, I was a grandmother at 40. Okay. When I was born, my grandmother was almost 80. Wow. She had my dad. She married and had my dad late in life. She was a spinster, so thus the only child. Right. So she was always an older grandmother. Not that it slowed her down any. Hmm. She passed away when I was 21 or 22, and she was just a few months shy of 100 years old. Wow. You said that you idolized your grandmother. Oh, she taught me, why. taught me things. She taught me about cooking. She taught me about gardening. She taught me... There were five kids in my family, older brother my twin brother, younger brother, and my younger sister. And yet her and I just always clicked. Hmm. I mean, we were just always together. When we were living in this country, we were always together. Hmm. And at a very young age, we moved overseas. And we were overseas until I was almost in high school. But we would occasionally come back for short visits. And then, of course, when my dad retired and we moved to Tacoma, my grandmother and I were always, always together, Mm. always doing something. And when she could no longer drive... Because she ran into a lot of things. <laughs> My dad just gave me her car keys. Hmm. And we went. Wherever she needed or wanted to go, we would go. To church, mm-hmm. to the grocery store, to visit friends, whatever. So you'd go and visit her friends with her? Yes, Tell me about her best friend at that time that you went and visited with her. You know, I I don't think she had what we would call a best friend. Because of her age, a lot of her friends were in nursing homes Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And so if somebody was in the hospital, we'd go. If it was somebody in a nursing home, 
we would go to visit once a week. Mm. And it's rather than a, a friend, I think it was just people that she knew, that she liked, that she felt she needed to take care of. Hmm. So I'm putting myself in my own late teen, early 20 time frame of my life. I can't picture myself enjoying going and doing those types of things with no? with, with an old grandfather or grandmother. I, I can't picture myself enjoying that. How I, has that affected you? It sounds like you loved it. I did. I did. I had a wonderful time. And I cherished it every minute of it. I mean, one day she asked me if I could take her up close to SeaTac Airport. And I said, why? And she said, she says, I just want to see those big planes, those big planes that your dad used to fly. She said, I saw them once when he was in college, and she said it it just, it was so hard for me to comprehend, and I would like to see him again. Mm. And so I actually took her up by Boeing Field, where there were some Navy planes, mm. some of the bigger Navy planes, and she came to Spokane as a young bride on a wag, small wagon train. Mm from Missoula and previously from Missouri. On a wagon train? Yes. Wow. So those big planes were so hard for her to comprehend. So what year was it that she passed away? Well, I was, say I was 22, Mm -hmm. be about 69, 1969, and she was born in... 19, I mean, 1870, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so I can just imagine the airplanes just blowing her mind. You oh, know? yeah. That oh, is yeah. such a cool experience. And, and as she observed those planes, what types of things did she say to you as she well, was watching that? she was comparing it, uh, she was talking about when my dad was in college, He learned to fly when he was a teenager because he was always fascinated with airplanes. Mm -hmm. So in the 30s, he would ride his bicycle out to this little airfield there in Tacoma, and he'd wash planes, and he'd do all kinds of things. And then in return, some of the pilots would give him lessons. Mm. And so... By the time he had graduated from high school, he had his pilot's license. And after one year of college, he applied and got a job as a pilot with what was later to become, I believe, TWA, doing a twice-weekly run from Boeing Field to Anchorage and back again with passengers and mail. And she did see him one time land at Boeing Field in one of those planes, and it just, I think it really frightened her, Mm. but she was so proud of him Mm. because he was paying for his way through the University of Puget Sound, Mm. 
and he was working on an engineering degree, and one paycheck was just more money than her or my grandfather had seen in forever or ever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was both frightened, I think, and, and proud of him at the same time. So naturally, when World War II broke out, he went down and enlisted in the Navy and was sent immediately to Pensacola, where the Navy was training their pilots. And he went through a short training period to learn to fly their planes and spent a few months after that training other pilots. And that's where he met and married my mother. Hmm. So what types of planes did he fly in the war? Was he a fighter pilot, a bomber pilot? No, he was not a fighter pilot. He flew smaller planes for several years, landing on aircraft carriers. But mostly he was flying the Constellations, which at that time was the biggest plane the Navy had. They were transporting people mm-hmm. and goods and doing some AWAC stuff, doing search and rescue. Mm. He did a lot of that. Did he talk too much about it throughout his life, his experience in the war? Not until probably the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. mostly because he couldn't. Mm. It had to be past the 20-year mark before right. he could talk about a lot of the things he mm-hmm. did. But then he did. Mm. You know, if you asked him something, it would open the floodgates. And yeah. I think it, it was cathartic to him to talk about it. He, um, at one point, had brought it took him two tries to get it, and he lost one crew member. But he brought von Braun out of Germany mm. with his wife and into Britain. Wow. And then the British, after debriefing, brought him over to our country. You know, things like that that he couldn't talk about at the time. But it was interesting. Yeah, I thought very interesting. So now I need to jump back in time to back to your early childhood. Okay. You mentioned that you have an older brother, you have a twin brother, a younger brother and a younger sister. What types of things did you guys like to do as a family when you were younger? Mm, that's hard because it was first of all until we were about 18, my twin brother and I were always together. Mhm. Except for a short period when he was about 17 where he seemed to have lost his mind. (laughs) Um, Don't all teenagers lose their mind? uh, Most teenagers lose their mind about them. (laughs) But we didn't do a lot of things with my older brother because my older brother was of the... He's only three years older than me, but he was of the impression that he should have been the only child in the family. And in fact, my mother and grandmother both agreed that until he was older and could go outside and play and had other friends, that he was to be watched all the time around Bob and I Mm. because he would try to hurt somebody. And if you asked him why... 
at three or four, he'd say, I don't want them here. Mm. I want to be the only one. And I don't know if that influenced how we felt, but we never never were very close with him and kind of just shied away. And I know that we spent a lot of time exploring places when we lived overseas, but we always had someone as a bunch of a lot of neighbor kids and all of us, but we always had someone watching us, you know, keeping an eye on us. So, So you have a twin brother... And, you know, I have twin children, and I have sisters that are twins also. So oh. twins are something that I, I don't know <laughs> life without twins. So I have a lot of experience with twins. But tell me your experience as a twin yourself. What are some some of the hijinks, some of the crazy things you and your brother did when you were younger? <laughs> like I, I said before, when we were in this country... We were at my grandmother's. And your brother was always there with you, too? Oh, usually, yes. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we were about probably seven or eight, we were just visiting for a couple of weeks. But the oil man had come to fill up their furnace. And he parked at the curb and ran this big hose you know, snaking along the the side of the house and down into the basement. And Bob and I were in the front yard, and we had found a hatchet that my uncle had been clearing bushes and stuff, and he had left it on the front porch. So I proceeded to chop the oil man's hose (laughs) and only stopped when there was oil running everywhere. (laughs) And we took off for the backyard. And, of course, it wasn't long before, you know, all heck broke loose. And (laughs) my mother wanted to know who had done that. And I just looked her in the face and said, I think Bob did. (laughs) (laughs) And he just stood there, never said a word. Not a word. And, you know, of course, I eventually told her the truth, but she said, you know, I kind of figured that anyway. (laughs) I mean, we used to do all kinds of things. He'd do things, and I'd convince somebody absolutely that it had to have been Bill that did it, my older brother, or, (laughs) you know, we were constantly in cahoots with each other. Yeah. Did you have each other's backs a lot? I mean, a lot, even as teenagers. What are some things maybe as a teenager that you guys did to have each other's back? Uh, well, we had an unfortunate incident when we were 16. We were going to Stadium High School. Now, you have to understand up until that point, we had been going to schools Uh, in Japan, in the Philippines, Guam, Korea, Hawaii, before it was a state, all these places where we were going to Department of Defense schools, which even today are completely different Mm. from a public school. So 
Stadium High School was a big adjustment for Bob. But we were getting by and starting to assimilate a little bit. And he went, it was a weekday, but it was some kind of a holiday. I don't remember what. He went with two of his friends down to a big theater that was not too far from our house, within walking distance anyway. It was one of those old, really fancy plush inside theaters. And they bought their tickets. They went in. They were going to go use the restroom and then get some snacks and go sit down. And when they were in the restroom, four young men came into the restroom and without saying one word by their admission later, they began to beat my brother and his two friends with brass knuckles, mm. with straight razors, mm. with steel toe boots. Mm. I mean, they put all three of them in the hospital. My brother was cut from here up to his ear. So from his lip to his ear. Wide open. Mm. Um, he had a severe concussion. I mean, the boys had broken ribs. It was extremely bad. That set him back years. Mm. Years. In his development or in his trust of humankind or Both. what? Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Everything. So he went through several years that, you know, I'd sit and talk with him and he'd talk to me, but he wouldn't talk much to others and pretty much kept to himself. And these boys were eventually, very quickly, in fact, caught. They had just been released from juvenile facilities, and when the judge asked them why they did that, their answer was, well, why not? We didn't have anything else to do. Mm. Hearing things like that, I think, really affected him badly. It was like, don't we matter? Mm. We're people, you know, we, we were behaving ourselves. Don't we matter? Back then, we didn't have the availability of counseling mm. or any kind of intervention like that, like they do today. And I think he could have really benefited from that. And you mentioned earlier that there was a time when he was about 17 where you said he lost his mind or something. And that probably stemmed it was from a result that experience, of, huh? Yes, yes. Even today... Has he come to peace with any with that situation? Has he been able to move past it, or is there are there still blocks in his his life and mind from that? You know, he went on as an adult, young adult, to get a good job where he worked hard and he did a good job, and then he saw an opportunity to get a better job, which he did, and he worked at that job for over 30 years until he retired mm -hmm. at 65. He's got a wife of over 20 years, and they're extremely devoted to each other. Mm -hmm. But he still, to this day, keeps pretty much to himself. Mm. 
just him and Cindy most of the time. I mean, I can call any time and talk to him. And I do call it odd times just to talk. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't talk to any... Well, there's just my sister left now. Two of my brothers have passed Mm -hmm. away in the last two years. Mm -hmm. But even when they were still alive, you know, he never called and talked to them. He would stop in and see my parents when they were still alive about once every two or three weeks Mm -hmm. and visit for a little bit. That was it. So did that experience that he had, that he went through, how did that affect you as his twin sister? (laughs) Not well at the time. Mm. My mother came and wherever I was at the time and, and put me in the car and took me out to the hospital. And I sat there with him for hours and hours. And finally she said, we have to go home. We'll come back in the morning. So we did. And was he conscious at that time? In and out. In and out. Yeah. So now you're heading home. And we go home and we went back in the morning and I stayed as long as she'd let me stay. When he, he did come home after a couple of days, but he was only home for about one day and we had to take him back to the emergency room because he had a severe infection. And that cut from his lip to his ear. Yep. So they had to lay it open and drain it and all that. And he had a much worse concussion than they realized. Mm. So he ended up staying probably for seven, eight days Mm. before they would let him come home. I went back to school and was called to the office for something and was walking to the office and was confronted by four or five girls who informed me that I should immediately let my parents know that they better not try and press charges against their friends. Mm. And... I went ahead and went on into the office, and I asked to use the phone, and I called and talked to my mother. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is just, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I told my mother I would like for her to come down and talk to the vice principal with me, and I told him what had happened. Mm-hmm. I told him that I wanted to graduate immediately. He said, you're a junior, you're 16. I said, I have enough credits. Hmm. I have enough credits. I want out of this school because I knew my brother wasn't going to go back. Right. And I said, you have no control over this school. None. And... My mother's looking at me, you know. (laughs) She says, you heard her. And he says, well, you're not going to walk, be able to walk with your class. And I said, I don't care. I said, get me my diploma. Yeah. He said, it'll be in the mail. And that was that. 
that was the end of high school for me. And you left that day and never went back to high never school? Never went back. And what time of year was that about? April, May. It was in April. So it was towards the end of your junior year. Yeah. And you graduated high school at that point, never went back to school, to high school again. Tell me now what your life looked like for, you know, the next few years after that. <sighs> kind of crazy. My parents, of course, said, you're not going anywhere for college at your age. Mm -hmm. And to be perfectly honest, my older brother was spending a lot of time at Ellensburg, Central Washington, okay. partying and fooling around and all of that. Mm -hmm. And he said, so we really can't afford to send you this year anyway. <laughs> so I spent a couple of years just working little jobs not far from home, helping my parents, had my grandmother, of course, mm -hmm. and trying to keep Bob from sinking into some really dark place. Mm -hmm. And I had met a young man, and seven, eight months later, told my parents that we were getting married, and... Bob immediately went down and enlisted in the Navy, <laughs> which, of course, was the biggest mistake in the world. Mm. You know, his first duty station right out of basic training was aboard an aircraft carrier, which was headed for the Philippines. Mm. Not a good place for a young man a single young man on his own for the first time. And who has some psychological damage yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, his stint in the Navy, I think, lasted 18 months. And he didn't get a, a dishonorable discharge. He just got discharged. Mm. That's all. Mm. <laughs> he showed up on my parents' doorstep one day, and they said, what? are you doing here? And he says, well, the Navy said I could come home. <laughs> so. They were wondering, have you gone AWOL? Or is yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> now, you mentioned that through your, your childhood, you were all over the Pacific. You, mm -hmm. you lived everywhere. Tell me what your favorite place of those places where you lived and a memory about that. My favorite place of all, I think, was... Oddly enough, the Philippines, which, if you've ever been there, is a poor, poor country. They have a very few wealthy people, mm -hmm. and then they have everybody else. Mm -hmm. And we lived in compounds, four or five houses in a compound. Had a huge 8-foot, 10-foot brick stone wall around it glass on the top, guard gate with a little guard. And that's the way everybody lived if they didn't live on base. And Subic Bay, which was the Navy base there, was small. So most everyone lived in compounds. We had a, a cook and a maid. She did both things. We had a lavendera who... Wow did nothing but laundry. Oh, okay, so <laughs> Clothes, that's what a lavender is. Sheets. If you woke up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, by the time you got back to bed your sheets were changed because it was 
you know, we had no air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And we had a houseboy who was about 17, and his job was to help with the more difficult things around the house, but also to watch us, make sure nobody left the compound, make sure we didn't run into any wildlife that, and there was plenty, Mm. you know, there were those huge bowling ball-sized spiders up in the coconut Mm. trees and poisonous snakes and all kinds of fun stuff. (laughs) But once a week, the cook or maid would take us with her to go into town to buy the few things that we could actually buy on the economy. We could only buy, say, a soft drink that had a sealed lid that came from somewhere else. Mm. Were these navy rules, or were the what? Why could you only buy it that was sealed from? Well, it's else? just like when we lived in Japan, we could not buy milk on the local economy because all the cows had tuberculosis. Oh, okay. Um, you could not buy vegetables that were grown in the ground because of the fertilizer that they used. Right. You could not eat any seafood that came out of the bay, which was right in front of our house, Mm. because there was badly polluted. Mm. I mean, it just goes on and on. And uh, So you'd just get those, a soft drink that was from somewhere else and it was still sealed and and stuff like that. Right, Mm right. And what we got was not actually a soft drink. It was more like the the Yoo-Hoo. Oh, yeah. It was a cho- some kind of chocolate, chocolate drink, uh-huh. which was a big treat for us. The only things that, of course, you know, we had to eat or drink was what my mother could get at the commissary. And once a month, either a ship or what, what was brought in by plane, that was it. So initially it sounds like, man, we live in this compound, we've got a houseboy, and we've got people that take care of everything. It makes it sound like, it, you know, this yeah. nice hoity-toity it's, thing, but at the same time, you yeah. are a prisoner, basically. Yeah. No, not a prisoner, yeah. you are, but you are very restricted in your own freedoms, right? Oh, absolutely. And living in Japan, not that long after the war, mm-hmm. was a little sketchy at times. Mm. You know, um, they dropped an atomic bomb on two of their cities and killed a lot lot of people. And so, you know, we were not allowed to go anywhere Mm. without military escort. Iwakuni was, I'd say, a medium-sized base. But after two or three years, that got real small, real small. So growing up on bases throughout the world, throughout the Pacific, in all these different places, how did that mold and affect you as you went into adulthood? Well, for one thing, made me feel like it was perfectly normal to pick up roots and move every two or three years. Hmm. I would talk to people wherever, and they would talk about how they grew up just a few blocks from wherever we were and their house was 
here and their mother and father lived a quarter of a mile away and their grandmother lived. It was a completely, well, it still is really Hmm. a completely foreign concept to me. Hmm. I know people here in Spokane who have really never moved out of the neighborhood that they grew up in. Hmm. They may call it something else. They may call it Hilliard instead of East Central, but they're a half a mile a mile from where they grew up. And if you suggest to them, why don't you go? You're retired now. Why You and your wife should take a trip to England. You have a daughter that lives in England, you know? Why would I want to go there? So it kind of opened your eyes to, to a lot of other situations that are out there. Yeah. So you mentioned the culture, a little bit of the Philippines and, the, and of Japan, soon after World War II. Yeah. So these places were, they were both pretty much devastated or yeah. had major after effects from the war. Yep. And so did Guam. You said, you mentioned yep. that you lived in Guam. Korea, the Korean War, was, it was, was that after the Korean War that you were in Korea? Yes. South Korean people are wonderful. They're wonderful. The smell of the country is hard to get used to. (laughs) smells like if you've ever been to that garlic festival in California that they have once a year. (laughs) Heavy garlic smell, huh? Kimchi. Kimchi, huh? Fermented cabbage and garlic, Mm. yes. But the, the Korean people are awesome. And we weren't fighting the the South Koreans, right. so I had some really good experiences growing up around the Far East. But at the same time, there's always the have to stay on base, can't go here, can't go there, can't eat this, can't eat that, can't, can't, can't. Dad's always gone, flying. When we were in Japan, was a hard time. Because we lost two of our neighbors. They were, one was a pilot and one, I think, was a co-pilot of a plane that was in my dad's squadron. Mm. And they were shot down over, oh yeah, it happens today. Yeah, oh yeah, (laughs) but they were shot down over, where were they shot down? Red China. Over Red China. Yeah, we're doing AWACS stuff. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it happens way more often than, than we, yeah. as a general public, are made aware. Yeah. You know, as the XO of the squadron, my dad had to deal with that. And then, of course, my mom with the wives. Mm. And so that was a, a difficult time. And we had some of those times, you know, off and on. And you just... Went about doing whatever it is you were doing, and you just, you didn't talk about it. And that, I think that was the hard part of, things were a lot calmer and whatnot when we moved to Hawaii. Mm. And we were there for three years Mm. at um, Barber's Point, which is not far from Pearl Harbor. And uh, that was a good time because we could go to the beach, we could go... Because it was American territory, whether or not it was a state at that time. Right, right. It was territory where 
it was friendly territory. For the most part, the local people, some of them were not happy about having the military there, but then again, some of them are still to this day not happy about having Howleys there. Is what they How call these being mainlanders or whatever white or people. White people, yes. Okay. You know, there's still a lot of Hawaiian people to this day mm-hmm. that believe that Hawaii should never have been a state. They should cease being a state. That mm-hmm. they would be better off, and they'll always feel that way. Obviously, you grew up in the military. Your your dad was in the navy. You were. I mean, all over the place. Yeah. And I don't know how long the gap is here that I'm jumping here, but you married somebody in the military. Yep. Is that something you thought you would do from the get-go, or did you think... What were your thoughts about that? Well, I don't think I ever really thought about it. Hmm. You know, I knew a lot of people in the military Mm -hmm. because we were a military family, and... Even when my dad retired, look where he retired. He retired in Tacoma, and there's Fort Lewis, and there's McCord Air Force Base with Madigan Army Hospital Mm. right between them. Madigan is a huge, huge complex. Mm. They got their health care there. They shopped there. It's, It's what I had always known and was comfortable with, so... It was 10 years that I worked, and I was married to my first husband. Was your first husband also military? He was, Uh and then he finished his tour Mm -hmm. and got out, and we went back to his home state of Maine. We were there for two years, and... I don't know if I decided or he decided or if both of us decided that it would be a good idea to go back to Washington because the state of Maine, it's a right-to-work state, mm-hmm. always has been. And jobs are scarce. Good jobs are even more scarce. Mm-hmm. And what they consider a good job mm-hmm. is not always so we went back to Washington with a six-month-old. So what kind of work were you guys doing at that time, you, you and your first husband? I was not working because mm-hmm. I had a baby, but he was working for the railroad, and he was working as a police officer. After 10 years and four, four children, well, I had four children in five years, but... <laughs> We parted ways. And he has, in the last couple of years, passed away. Mm-hmm. So when I say we parted ways, he left. And we did not hear from him for years. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Does that bring you eventually to Rick, your current husband? I met him. I was working. Of course, when he left, when my first husband left, I had to go to work. Mm-hmm. I had four kids right. under the age of seven. So I immediately, like the next day, went out and got a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doing what? <clears throat> Let me see. What was my first job was 
my first job was waitressing because that was a job I could get and start immediately. And I did that for a very short while and then realized, well, this is a nice, really nice place to work, but there are jobs here I could do that I could make a whole lot more money than what I'm making. Right. Way back then, waitresses were paid like a couple dollars a day mm -hmm. and then whatever tips you made. And I thought, no, this is not going to cut it. So <laughs> I looked around and talked to the owner, and he found me a job there making a little more. Now, was that the same restaurant? Yes. Okay. And then when he decided to sell after a year or two, whatever, he had owned this. He was getting quite old, and he had owned this place for decades, and it was kind of a well-known place there in Tacoma, okay. down on the waterfront. It was called the Top of the Ocean. It was a actual riverboat that they had permanently parked there, and when he sold, I found another job, actually closer to home, and it was working as a cocktail waitress. So I thought maybe this will be... It was a huge place. Mm -hmm. The area where the tables were, they had a restaurant and then a bar, mm -hmm. and then there was this huge area where full of tables, and they had a big stage and a big dance floor where they played country-western music six nights a week. And I thought... Maybe with this many tables, I can do a little better. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I did. I was making probably really good, good money. But then I saw an, another opportunity. <laughs> let, let me stop you right here for just a minute. So while you're working as a waitress, as a cocktail waitress, how is raising these kids, four kids under the age of seven, and growing up as you're doing this, how is that going? How are you doing? It's that? going good. I was fortunate enough to have this young woman who was 17, who lived right next door, also a twin, mm. Patty, and her brother, Perry. They were babysitting for me. Mm. So I'm working jobs where I'm going to work as the kids are going to bed. Mm. And... Patty would walk next door with her school books, and she would sit and, you know, I had somebody responsible mm -hmm. to watch my kids, and she was making a little extra money because I'd pay her every single night, and I had all day with my kids. I would sleep from the time I got home, which is about 3 in the morning, until time for get up for school, because <laughs> two of them were going to school. And then I'd nap while the little ones were napping. And, you know, it was it was working hmm. really well. Nice. Yeah. All right, so now we go back from the cocktail waitress. You found another opportunity. Tell me about that. One of their bartenders quit, and I thought, 
I know these bartenders not only make tips, but they make a whole lot more money, work about the same hours, but then they've also got the protection of they're back there. And I talked my boss into letting me try because I'd been watching. Now, as a non-drinker, he was a little skeptical Skeptical. that I could do it. But just because I don't drink... You can still follow a recipe or whatever. Absolutely. So I was successful enough that he started giving me regular shifts. And from there, I went with two other employees to open up a new place that Mm -hmm. he was opening in Bremerton. I want to dig a little bit deeper right before that. You mentioned the protection of the bar. Did you have some experiences while you were waitressing or cocktail waitressing that made you feel like you needed that or wanted that? Um, Not the kind of experiences that I've seen some young women have. Okay. Just a couple of times that someone that I was honestly no more than pleasant to, thank you, you have a good night, you know, just absolutely pleasant and nothing more that kind of thought there was something more and started to get bothersome. Okay. And I was... Not very old, but old enough to understand that I'm leaving a place by myself at 3 o'clock in the morning, and yeah, so... So now you're going and opening up this new bar. Yep, in Port Orchard, actually. And I worked there for about a year. It was really quite a, a good success for him. And after about a year, someone from... A, a really nice, nice, upscale type place in Bremerton, which is right around the corner there, offered me a job as the night manager, and I took that. And you're continuing to basically do the same schedule. you got the next-door neighbors watching your kids at night. You're sleeping just a few hours, catching right. some cat naps when you can, yep. and, and surviving that way. So are there other experiences between there and when you met Rick that you want to talk a little bit about? See no. Where that's at? No? <laughs> no? So tell me how you met Rick. Tell me what happened there. Mm. I was working out at Banger. I never left a job and went to another job unless it was better hours, better pay, better anything. Mm-hmm. So... I got a job working at the Marine Club out at Bangor. On top of the Marine Barracks, there was a club that was their club. Um, It had a club manager. They served food. They had pool tables. They had TVs and games. What do you call Pinball games and... It was just a place for the Marines that were stationed there for downtime. And it was open, I want to say, probably 10 in the morning till 11 o'clock at night or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
and there were two of us that worked there. Manager didn't work in the club. And so it was a good job for me at that time. And he came in one day, and um, I talked to him a little bit, but I talked to everybody. Right. And a couple more times, you know, and he asked me to go have coffee with him. <laughs> and I said, sure, but then I didn't show up. <laughs> so he came and asked me again. And we did that a few times before I actually did show up. But that's how we met. Hmm. So Now, um, you mentioned way earlier in this conversation that you retired 20 years ago. And I know that you mm-hmm. were a teacher. Tell me how that came about. When we were in Hawaii this so you, last time. So with you and Rick and the kids. Right. Okay. We had the two youngest boys were both advanced placement students. And so in talking to some of our neighbors and doing some checking into the school system, public school system, we realized that the public schools in Hawaii were ranked. Now, this was 20 years ago, so I want to say probably... 49 out of 50. Right. So worrisome at any rate. We started checking into private schools. And I went and talked to the secretary at one school that I knew some of the other wives sent their kids to. It was a bit pricey. And she understood right away that I was... A little skeptical because of the price. And she said, you know, all you have to do, and she gave me the address and the phone number and everything, is go down to this office, fill out an application, and if they accept you, you take the courses and you can get certified. As a teacher. Well, as a substitute teacher, teacher. but she said, once you're a certified sub, anybody can hire you full time. Mm. And I said, I don't have a teaching degree. Mm -hmm. And she said, you don't need a teaching degree. Mm. She said, let me tell you a little secret about the teachers in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it, it was kind of obvious that some wonderful people, wonderful people, but they were a little short on their command of the English language and geography. (laughs) Well, you're a geography expert. You've lived all over the place. Well, maybe not an expert, but at least I knew that there was a Washington, (laughs) D.C., and a Washington State which were two different places. Right. <laughs> and when you've got a 14-year-old looking you in the face and arguing that there is no such thing, there's only one Washington, you know you got a, your job cut out for you. But mm-hmm. at any rate, I filled out the paperwork, I took all the courses and got my certification within two days that school was calling me 
It wasn't a huge school, but it was big enough that they were calling me probably to start with for the first year by the time I had gotten everything I needed, uh, six months, mm. and I would say I probably worked three to four days a week. And by the time we were getting ready to start the next school year, they had a class lined up for me, and it just went from there. And then when we left Hawaii, we went to Camp Pendleton in California, mm-hmm. I immediately went over to the elementary school on base Mm -hmm. and put my application in there and was called right away. So was a a lot of your teaching done on bases around, or was it done in public schools? No, in Hawaii it was a private private school school, out in town. But then in California it was on base base. simply Mm -hmm. because it just felt safer to me. Mm. The public schools in Southern California are not where I would want my kids to go, and it sure isn't where I would want to work. Right, right. So after two years on base, then the third year, they had a big shift in state regulations, and the teachers were pushing for 20 in a classroom which I think since then has gone way by the wayside. (laughs) It lasted less than a year, actually, which meant shifting everybody around. And myself and two other teachers who were the newest hires were assigned to the middle school. (laughs) (laughs) Teaching a bunch of 13, 14-year-olds, huh? Yeah, yeah. I don't know about the third one. I don't remember ever finding out if she went or not, but I know that two of us declined. So I just went into retail management. I went to work at the exchange, and the exchange there on Camp Pendleton, if you can imagine, is huge. I'm sure. And so I did that till we left, and then... When Rick retired, we moved up to Lacey, and we were there for a short while. And I went down and one day got a job as a manager at McCord. And he got a job right away with the railroad. What are some experiences that you have had over the last... How long have you and Rick been married? 37 years. 37 years. Next month. So what are some of the places you lived in during those 37 years? Yes, Southern California, yes, Hawaii. Are there any other places that you lived as a family during those times? Okinawa. We lived up in Bridgeport, California. Actually, he was stationed at MWTC, Mountain Warfare Training Center. Okay. And we had a little house, a little fishing cabin we rented at about 7,000 feet. Oh, wow. And the base was at, I think, 10,000 feet. Yeah, it's way up there, Mm. up in the Sierra Nevadas. Mm -hmm. We were there for over a year, and the kids loved it. Mm. I mean, it was probably as sparse and humble as you could possibly live, 
and the kids had a ball. How old were the kids at this point about? Christy was the youngest, and she was probably seven or eight. Okay. And then Sissy, nine, 11, and 12, or 10 and 11, Uh right in there. And they just loved it, huh? Oh, yeah. You had a whole mountain to play on, basically. They had a whole national forest with rivers and wildlife. They were in their element there, I'll tell you. I I think that's probably one of the most memorable places that we lived. Other than than the the really cool area that you were in and the the availability of wildlife and na- nature and everything, what is maybe the best memory you have of that place? Just the fact that the kids were I I was worried to begin with mm-hmm. taking them up there, you know. We were living in Washington, you know, the kids had a TV and they had their sport. All of a sudden, they don't have any of that. Right. And are they going to be miserable? Are they? Gonna... But to see them flourish, just flourish in that whole atmosphere, mm-hmm. you know, going down to the river had streams coming off of it and they would straddle these streams and catch trout in their hands and they'd sit out back and watch the deer come by herds of them to go down and drink at night and they'd climb mountains and just do all sorts of you know how do you think that affected them going forward in their lives that experience Positively, because they still, to this day, talk about it. Mm. When the four of them get the older kids, because Rick and Jim were little then, but the the older kids, when they get together, which isn't too often, they always bring that up. Always. Remember when we did this. Remember when we did that. So I think it gave each of them a sense that... I can handle anything. Hmm. That adventure and the living like a mountain man. You yeah. Know? That's what they're, th- I'm like a mountain man. Now they think they can accomplish or overcome really anything that's in front Absolutely. of them. Absolutely. Put up with any hardship. Hey, toss it to me. I, I've done worse, you know. <laughs> what other experiences through these last 37 years have, has, have been formative in your life that have brought you to where you are today? Well, I don't think that I'm any different, really, inside than I've ever been. Hmm. If I just sit and think back to when I was 15, 16, doing stuff with my grandmother, I'm the same now, really. My perceptions, my outlook, everything is pretty much the same as it always has been. Hmm. I I think that doing family history, looking at the, reading some of the history and stories about some of my ancestors, especially her family. Your grandmother's family? My grandmother's family. Mm -hmm. It reinforces that. I don't think I've, I mean, I'm sure I've, changed, you know, my appearances changed, uh, whatever, but the basic me Mm -hmm. is pretty much the same 
as it always has been. So if you could boil the basic you down to a couple of words or a phrase, how would you define the basic Mary? Hmm. Caring, compassionate, although wary at times. I'm not as trusting as I would like to be sometimes. My kids mean the world to me, and my grandkids, and my great-grandkids. Mm. But my kids mean the world to me. Very important. Very, very cool. And, and the caring and compassionate, I see that all over. Those are the things that you define as, you know, this is who Mary is. What is a weakness that you have in your life? Maybe a character weakness that you see in yourself that you're like, man, I wish I was a little bit better at doing that. Hmm. Sometimes I talk too much. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) As a rule, I'm pretty patient, but occasionally I get, hmm, I get impatient with people who seem to drag their feet. If, If I feel like I can see something that needs to be done and explain it and then to have somebody say, well, okay, well, I'll think about that. No, 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 no. You obviously know it needs to be done. Let's, let's do it. Mm. Sometimes I, I think people spend way too much time talking about things, thinking about things, planning things, when they could just go do it. Hmm. I got very frustrated with a good friend of mine because she had a family situation and she was sharing it with me. And I said, finally, well, you just need to do this. Well, yeah, but no, no. (laughs) <laughs> no buts. Just do it. Yeah. Well, I get very frustrated with that. And, and I run into that kind of situation more than I would like to think. Mm. But but I do. And I just don't have the patience for mm. that. Yeah. Do you feel that that trait of, yes, you getting out and doing things, but the expectation of others, hey, just go and do it. When you know what you need to do, just go and do it. Do you think that comes from a military upbringing, or do you think that's a little comes bit... comes from my mother, yes. Tell me about that a little bit. Ever since, and I, I've caught myself doing that a couple of times and thought, oh, <laughs> that's my mother. <laughs> she was always like that. You could go to her and say, Mom, we need to go over to Tony's and get some of that corn. They've got it by the bushel. And before you could get the words out of your mouth, now, if she thought it was a good idea, if she thought it was a bad idea, forget it. But if she thought it was a good idea, before you could even finish the sentence, she was picking up her purse and her car keys. 
anything mm. that she decided or my dad decided or someone asked her, can we do this? And she thought, yes, she wanted to do it now. Mm. She did not want to wait till tomorrow or later. Do it now. Let's just get it done. huh? Yeah. And that's not always a good trait <laughs> To have. It can really upset people sometimes. Yeah. So what's a time when that trait, you mentioned a little bit about a friend of yours that you got upset, uh, impatient with, frustrated with. Is there another time where that trait in your life has come back and bit you in the butt maybe? Oh, I'm sure there has been. And I can't think of any specific examples, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure there has been when... And haven't we all had times when jumping in with both feet before you were looking to see how far down you were going to fall was not always a good idea? Oh, I'm sure that Mm -hmm. it's come back to bite me in the butt more than once. And as a result, I've kind of, I try to temper myself and slow myself down because... If I don't, I get very frustrated, and it's frustrated with me. Mm. So I've tried, especially as I've gotten older, to try and... It'll always be there tomorrow. It doesn't (laughs) have to be done right this second. But if somebody's always in that mindset, oh, it'll always be there tomorrow. Yeah, it will. Whatever gets done, right? That's right. Nothing ever gets done. That's right. And that's one of my weaknesses. I I procrastinate a lot mm. and things. So, you know, I drive you crazy, I'm sure, at some points, and, and that's Aww. fine. But, <laughs> but I know I drive myself because I, I yeah. also want to be that person that just goes, but then I go, mm, it can wait till tomorrow, you know? But <laughs> so. there are some things that are important enough that they should not. Yeah. They should not. I've got a couple more questions for you. So earlier in this uh, conversation, you mentioned that you are an avid reader. Yes. Tell me a couple of the books that you've read in your life that have had the most effect on you and maybe the books that you've recommended to others more than anything else. Oh, wow. Well, one that I really, really enjoyed was about three or four years ago. I read a series about the history of Florida. And they went in, I think it was a three-part series that this man, and I can't remember who wrote it. I'd have to go way back on my nook. Uh He went into great detail about the early people, the early animal life and marine life and the Everglades and the things that lived there. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And I have a lot of family that lives in Pensacola, Louisiana, Georgia, Mississippi. And so, you know, I was very much interested in all of, but that probably was one of my all-time favorites. 
That's very interesting because it. I mean, if you think about it, the history of Florida. Yeah. You yeah. know, interesting, but but it was super super interesting to you. Yes, right? and detailed, and you know, I have a lot of ancestors that settled in Florida hmm. in the 1700s. And where did they come from? France. France to Canada to Florida. Okay. Whoever was king of France, I probably should know this, and I have no idea, <laughs> at that time gave him a land grant. And he married to a French woman. This is like my fifth great-grandfather. And generations lived there in Florida. Florida. And at that time, there was a big influx of French from Canada down into Florida. Mm. Anyway, generations lived on this land. And then when World War II broke out, Mm -hmm. the government decided that they needed to build a big Navy base in Pensacola, and they took uh, the biggest majority of this land to which is now Pensacola Naval Air Station mm. and downtown Pensacola. Mm. So, somebody in my family still got all the papers. I guess they've been fighting with the government for decades, but. <laughs> Yeah, they took it. They didn't buy it. Yeah, darn and, eminent domain thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that happened all over this country. Yeah. That happened. They needed it for the war, and they used it to train all those pilots. Right. So those books were, to me, were fascinating. Mm. Reading them, I could picture some of my ancestors, and Very that's nice. probably... One of my all-time favorites. Very neat. Last question, unless there's other words of wisdom you have. What is some advice that you would like to give me and to your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, moving on down the line for generations to come, of things that you've learned in your life that is most important to you? Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. As far as you're concerned, Justin, (laughs) I think number one most important thing for anybody is family. Family. Not just your children and grandchildren, if you have grandchildren or great-grandchildren like I do, but your whole family. And my kids have kind of really blossomed in that area in the last few years. It isn't just their kids that are important to them or grandkids in the case of both my daughters have a grandchild, but extended family and their siblings. Mm -hmm. And I think losing their grandparents, my parents, had a profound effect on them. Mm. And I'm glad that something keyed it, but they were all close to their grandparents. And Mm. so whatever it was, I'm happy to see it. Mm. And I've encouraged them all to 
don't ever lose that. That it's so important. I need to ask one more question here on this because okay. I want to build on that. What dangers are there if you lose that connection with family? Hmm. My youngest sister is a good example of what happens when you lose that connection. Now, she voluntarily cut everybody out of her life. She's angry, and it has caused her to be bitter. It really makes me sad to see her like that because I'm going to be 72 next month, which means she is going to be 68 in July. And she's going to be alone and just angry and and bitter and sad. I realize that some people just don't have any family. Mm -hmm. But when you do... How do you combat that anger and bitterness? I'm putting myself hypothetically in somebody else's shoes. If I'm feeling that way, I'm feeling either betrayed by a family member or let down or whatever, how would I then combat that so that I can keep that advice that you're giving us, family is everything? Well, if you don't recognize in yourself that there's something wrong, then hopefully you will have somebody that will tell you Mm. something's wrong. (laughs) And hopefully it will be someone that you have enough respect for. Or perhaps you have enough respect for someone that you could go to them and say, I think I'm stuck in this, this hole. Talk about it. But there's people you can talk to. There's always someone who will not only listen, but has got some really sound advice. Always. Whether it's somebody at church, somebody that you work with, one person in your family. It doesn't have to be a close family member. A good friend. Always somebody. It's important to have those people that you can be honest with. I think that's some pretty powerful advice there. Any other words of wisdom or anything you'd like to share with us, Mary? (laughs) Mary, I had a blast doing this. Thank you so much, Mary. You're welcome. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, and that perhaps you were inspired to become a bit better of a person because of it, a bit better of a family member, or perhaps a confidant that someone else can reach out to in a time of trouble. If you have felt a change in your heart and are motivated to do something because of that change of heart, my invitation is to get out there and do something about it now. Or, in the spirit of what Mary has just shared, just go and do it. If you don't act on it now, it is likely that this feeling will pass and you won't remember it, and it will just become empty words ringing distantly in your memory. Once again, if you know anyone, or are anyone, that would love to share experiences of life in a long-form conversation, please send me an email at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com. As always, my experience is that wisdom and peace in this life come from knowing Jesus Christ and doing as he would have me do. Mm-hmm.